Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the judge today dismissing Trump's appeal against the business fraud case brought by the New York Attorney General, which goes to trial on October the 2nd and could shut down most or all of Trump's businesses. Joining us is someone who has known Trump and investigated his business practices for decades, David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Also, the co-founder of DCReport.org, we'll discuss his latest article there, Judge Gives Trump Organization the Corporate Death Penalty. Then, with polls indicating American voters don't care about the fate of democracy so much as what the economy is doing for them, we'll examine the problem for Biden of being a good president who has accomplished an amazing record of success in spite of the weak hand he was dealt, but is not necessarily the best candidate in the age of contention and clickbait. Joining us is Robert Kuttner, co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Meyer Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism, Going Big, FDR's Legacy, and Biden's New Deal and the Struggle to Save Democracy. And we'll discuss his article at the American Prospect, Winning the Ideas, Losing the Politics. Then finally, with the Republican House rejecting the Senate plan to avoid a shutdown, we'll assess whether Trump's call to the Freedom Caucus, quote, unless you get everything, shut it down, will backfire. Joining us is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. His latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856-1860, and he is a columnist at The Guardian, whose latest article we will discuss, Congressional Republicans are trapped in a dangerous absurdity of their own making. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now from Berlin is David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, that he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. 
His latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. And he's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, where his latest article is Judge Gives Trump Organization the Corporate Death Penalty. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnston. Glad to be here again with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And your piece on Judge Gives Trump Organization the Corporate Death Penalty, I didn't realize that what uh, the judge in New York said uh, on Tuesday was so damning. So just walk us through the consequences for Trump that already exist from uh, the decertification of his businesses. So uh, Letitia James, the elected attorney general of New York State, has been investigating Trump for financial frauds, uh, real estate fraud, banking fraud, uh, insurance fraud. And Trump's testified in the case. He took the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination hundreds of times. And uh, the case was scheduled to go to trial on next Monday, October 2nd. The judge responding to motions by the attorney general for a summary judgment and by Donald Trump for summary dismissal uh, said that there's no basis for dismissal and showed why and then granted um, summary judgment to the state attorney general on the fraud issues, leaving only how much money Trump must pay in damages for his frauds to be tried uh, in that courtroom. At the end of this very well-written 35-page decision laying out the basis of the judge's decision, he Uh, issued a series of orders. And one of those is that all, and that's the key word, all business certificates, that's what we call business licenses in New York, all business certificates of Trump, the Trump organization, and uh, his oldest two sons and other people are canceled. Well, you can do business if you're a sole proprietor, like I do in New York State, writing books uh, without a license. But if you create a corporation, a limited liability company, a partnership, you have to get permission from the state to do so. And his licenses are gone. And all of his entities, his Boeing 757 jet, his golf courses, uh, the uh, uh, parts of Trump Tower he still owns and rents out for office space and retail space, all of those are owned through these entities that have been canceled. So... That's the corporate death penalty for Trump. So what are the immediate consequences, though? Well, um, the businesses will continue to operate for the moment, but there is a monitor already in place and who was uh, reappointed by the judge. That's to make sure that Trump doesn't try to siphon money out of these organizations for himself or Confederates. Once the damages are set uh, at trial... And after any appeals Trump files, and I'll come back to that in a second, um, the judge will appoint a receiver who will then set about to sell all of these Trump properties that he no longer can uh, own. Now, the uh, creditors and the state of New York and the federal government will all get paid first. The last person in line to get any money will be Donald Trump. And given The inflated values that he used and the judge documents from testimony and records. Uh, We're not talking about, you know, you you told the bank you made 10% more than your salary uh, because you might get a bonus. 
we're talking about Trump saying a property was worth 10 times, 20 times, even more than that, its real worth. Uh, I'd say there's a very good chance that Donald will end up with nothing more than his presidential and TV show pensions. Wow. So is this, uh, is it possible then that in the end, Donald Trump may have to borrow money from his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who got $2 billion from the Saudis? Is that is that going to be the final irony here? Well, um, he won't be able now to borrow money from banks. Uh, both state and federal law and international agreements say that if you're a fraudster, Donald Trump now has been found to, you know, to be a rapist by another judge and to be a fraudster. Uh, fraudsters cannot borrow from banks. They are prohibited by law from doing so. And you can be sure if some bank is thinking about making a loan to him that the regulatory authorities will be all over that. Now, Trump can appeal, and I assure you, Ian Donald will appeal. It's the, who he is. Here's his problem. Under New York state law, he cannot appeal the findings of fact by the judge. This is not a jury trial. Trump agreed to a bench trial, probably because he didn't trust New Yorkers being on a jury judging him. And so all he can appeal is on the law. And uh, well, I'm not a lawyer. As you know, I teach law. And I don't see any appealable grounds. And a number of other legal commentators in the last 24 hours have said the same thing. There doesn't appear to be any legal error by the judge. Significantly, the judge fined five Trump lawyers $7,500 each for misconduct. Uh, in his 35-page opinion, the judge notes that they uh, quoted an important court case, but they clipped off the first part of the language, which made the case say the opposite in the filing that it actually says in the real world, that they misstated the law in other matters, and that issues the judge had already ruled on, they filed again. Um, none of that will go well for uh, uh, Trump and the lawyers if they uh, pursue an appeal, as I expect. Uh, and they may find that damaging. And frankly, uh, given that uh, two of Trump's lawyers, at least, um, Rudy Giuliani and um, John Eastman, the former, yeah, the former dean of the Chapman Law School in Orange, whom I once debated and found him to be a pretty unworthy opponent, frankly, they're facing disbarment for things they did for Trump. And I suspect these five lawyers uh, may well find complaints filed against them over their improper conduct on Donald's behalf. But my understanding is, David, that one of these lawyers screwed up in the, in the filings uh, where she didn't check the box about whether you have a jury trial or a bench trial. And that's the reason why there's a bench trial. Have you heard that? I haven't, and that's possible, but um, there are other pleadings that I've read that seem to accept the notion of a jury trial, and uh, Trump would take some little minor thing like that and, of course, blow it up. I mean, let's assume that on appeal, um, the trial judge is told to go back and recalculate the damages that Trump owes. Um, Donald will for sure say, see, I'm completely vindicated. I'm completely cleared, because... That's who Donald is. Uh, you know, it, it, a good example of that, remember I've covered him for 35 years, 
During the 2016 campaign, he was asked by a radio talk show host, uh, well, you say you're a Christian. Would you please tell us about the last time you asked God for forgiveness? And Trump says, forgiveness? Why would I ask God for forgiveness? I've never done anything in my life that requires forgiveness. I mean, how much more do you need to know about what a mentally ill, self-absorbed character Donald Trump is than that? Well, one of the things in your article, though, that I find extraordinary is that in 2015, Trump claimed his net worth was north of $10 billion. And then when he became president, he was asked to file his federally required financial disclosure statements without signing them under penalty of perjury. And he asked if he could file them without si- signing them under penalty Exactly, yeah, sorry. And that the request was denied. What he then filed basically made his network not much more than $1 billion. And why was that never reported on, except for you reporting on it in, in DC report? I'm surprised um, that that's a big deal, that Trump's network overnight plummeted 90%. Uh, there was some reporting about Forbes, which valued his uh, enterprise at about $3 billion, still an enormous fall from 10. Um, well, you know, most journalism is an accurate, reliable recounting of what sources told the reporters. You know, the mayor said this in a speech, a company announced that, etc. Uh, But most reporters don't have deep knowledge of things like law, economic theory, regulation. And so they tend to go with, you know, what the official version of events is. No reporter ever got in trouble for reporting what the news herd is reporting, even when the herd is wrong. And it's been one of the things that's annoyed me my entire career. I, I wrote pieces in The New York Times before I left on a couple of things where the herd kept getting things wrong. And, you know, to this day, I keep saying the same things that I showed were wrong, being reported wrong in the Wall Street Journal and the L.A. Times and everywhere else. So uh, lots of good work gets done, but you have to put it in the context of, well, this is what the sources said without deeper understanding of what it meant. So when you were saying earlier that Trump could lose his Trump Tower apartment, his golf courses, his Boeing 757 jet, and even Mar-a-Lago, and would end up living off his presidential pension and whatever he would get, and I guess in terms of residuals from The Apprentice. So how would he lose Mar-a-Lago? Because I thought that one of the reasons that people buy property in Florida is that it can't be taken away. You know, cars and, and homes can't be confiscated. Uh, so why, how, people, how... people go to uh, both Texas and Florida if they're facing bankruptcy. This is not a bankruptcy case. This is a fraud case, and it is different. Now, I haven't seen the internal paperwork on how Trump owns at the moment Mar-a-Lago. He may have changed the ownership structure, but in the past, he owned it through a corporation, it was a New York corporation. And a little little story about this uh, that I think is kind of revealing about Trump. When Donald bought Mar-a-Lago, he announced that he paid all cash for it. Well, I have in my files the letter from Chase Bank giving him a mortgage for 100% of the purchase price plus an extra $2 million, $8 million to buy it, $2 million extra. 
and promising not to record the mortgage at the courthouse like all of the rest of us have our mortgages recorded. Under New York law, it is illegal for a bank, in this case Chase Bank, to issue a mortgage that is not recorded because mortgages, remember, are traded in a market uh, nationally. Uh, They're subject to all sorts of state and federal regulations. But Donald Trump talked Chase, one of the biggest banks in the country, into not publicly filing the mortgage so that he could say he paid cash for it, when in fact, he didn't pay a penny for it. And he put money in his pocket when he bought it because the mortgage was bigger than the purchase price. Uh, anybody remember what happened in 2008 when people were going around borrowing a million dollars on a $500,000 house and putting a half million dollars in their pocket? The whole economy sunk. Hmm. So he's not so stupid after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Donald, Donald knows how to, to pull money out of things. I mean, he's, I, I, I admire the fact that he is the greatest con man in history. He conned his way into the White House. He's conned roughly 75 million American adults into believing that he is uh, their savior or a living God. I mean, literally, there are people out there who described him that way. Uh, Newsweek had a piece quoting pastors as saying that, um, uh, evangelical pastors, that uh, members of their flock we're telling them, why are we following this Jesus stuff about turn the other cheek? We, we want the gospel of Donald, you know, hit back, uh, put people to death. Um, it's an astonishing thing that he has accomplished. It's a horrible thing. But uh, if you step back, you know, you got to admire him the same way. Uh, I spent a lot of time when I was at the LA Times just before I left with a mafia hitman. And he explained to me all the people he killed and beaten up and other things he'd done. And he'd never been arrested. And the cops and the FBI agents, when I'd call them, they'd say, oh, how's so-and-so doing? Haven't talked to him in years. <laughs> you sort of have to admire that kind of skill. Mm, God. So, but the thing about Trump, though, that I I have heard, I mean, my understanding is that on election night, when he finally was declared the victor in 2016, that Melania was in tears she just absolutely collapsed in tears. And there have been some reporting suggesting that Trump ran for the presidency as sort of a lark to increase, increase the value of, his, of the Trump brand and to give it more visibility. And after all, he was given billions of dollars in free advertising, which is one of the reasons why he won the presidency from the mainstream press gift to him was that to this day they can't stop reporting on him. So is it possible in an ironic way, David, that what we're talking about, which just happened with the New York Attorney General, is a consequence of him becoming more public a figure than otherwise he would have gotten away with all this, his crooked dealings had he not fallen into the trap of his ego and I, becoming I, I, powerful. Ian, the, Ian, the, the, Ian I, absolutely, I absolutely believe that if Donald had not become president, he would not be the focus of law enforcement because as far back as 1988, I was writing about him lying, cheating, and stealing. And the most that happened to him was he had to pay a fine. Nothing serious happened to him. Um, you know, he, he got away with these fantastical lies. He claimed to be the biggest developer in New York. He wasn't even in the top 10. Um, uh, when he ran in 2000 and in 2000, 
2016, uh, 2012. Um, you'll recall he said back then in the first case he was going to make a profit off running for president. And then in 2012, all these journalists were seriously covering his campaign, and only Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC and yours truly said he's not running for president. He's running for a better contract with NBC for his TV show. And when he got his new contract with more money, what did he do? He said, you know, I really should be president. No one else in America can be president. They, they don't know how to do the job. But, but right now my television show needs me more. Well, the politics reporters, the ones who cover the horse race, they had egg on their face, well-deserved egg on their face. They got taken for a ride by Donald. So when he announced in 2015 that he was running again, they dismissed this. This is all a vanity ploy. He's just trying to make money. And I was virtually alone in saying, starting the very day he came down the escalator, this is serious business. He is running and you better pay attention. And you know, I went to my former editors at the New York Times and other newspapers and couldn't get them to pay attention. They kept saying, yeah, everybody knows Donald Trump is a clown and a, and a crook, and he doesn't, he'll never get nominated. And I said, yes, he will, as he did. But I think there are mixed motives here. I mean, he, Donald always wants to make money, but he has been publicly talking about being president since 1987 which, by the way, is the same year that the Russian government, the Kremlin, started doing favors for Trump, uh, uh, trying to groom him as a potential Kremlin asset. And his father, you know, believed he should be president. And Donald has said, you know, he should run the whole world. No one else can do it. He's the only one who can possibly do it. And this is just part of his delusional uh, mind. Right. But the worst thing that can happen to a delusional narcissist is to give him more attention and power. And the American people, to their eternal shame, gave this guy the most powerful job in the world, the presidency. No wonder yeah. he's gone off the deep end. Yeah. I'm in Berlin right now. I just spoke a few days ago at the uh, Global Investigative Journalism Conference in Sweden. And I was talking with, I've talked with several people, and, and they all describe Trump the same way Europeans do. Where did you get this clown? This, this guy, he's a buffoon. Um, I mean, they, they can see clearly what a large minority of Americans, not a majority, a large minority of Americans uh, are blinded to about his nature, his incompetence. And, you know, he's, he just, he makes everything up. He told me one day back 30 years ago that he was worth $3 billion. And I said, well, I don't believe you. And he got angry. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, you know, I'm a newspaper reporter with eight children, and I pay all my bills on time. You claim to be worth $3 billion. Why am I hearing from hundreds of vendors that you're stiffing them and you're not paying them what you owe them? Well, a couple of hours later, he told another reporter he was worth $5 billion. <laughs> your net worth doesn't go from three billion to five billion in a couple of hours. He just makes this stuff up, and yet millions and millions of Americans embrace him because he says it's okay to be a racist and to attack people who aren't like you. Um, he tells people that he's a Christian when, in fact, his life philosophy he says is revenge, which is about as anti-Christian as you can get. Not to mention that he wrote six pages in a book denouncing. Christians as fools and idiots and schmucks. And 
he um, appeals to the roughly 90% of Americans who are worse off today than their parents or grandparents were 50 years ago. Uh, so one, the one maybe good thing Donald Trump has done is he's raised awareness among the Democrats who were not paying attention of how going along with the suppression of unions and a host of other policies that have pushed wages down in this country for the bottom 90 percent has been a mistake. And that's why you saw, for example, Joe Biden on the picket line yesterday, the first time any president's ever done that, saying, you union members gave up a lot uh, 14 years ago, 15 years ago uh, to General Motors and Ford and Stellantis. And now those companies are highly profitable and you deserve now to be taken care of. And uh, Trump, in, in a perverse way, brought public attention to the level of anger of people who have legitimate grievances because the rules of the economy were changed by both parties, though mostly by Republicans, over the last 50 years, or at least the last 42 or three years, to really screw over uh, most Americans, especially those that only have a high school education. Well, David K. Johnston, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Glad to be with you anytime, Ian. Well, thanks again, David. And I've been speaking with David K. Johnston, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won a Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. And his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. And he's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, where his latest article is Judge Gives Trump Organization the Corporate Death Penalty. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into polls and indicate American voters don't care about the fate of democracy so much as what the economy is doing for them. Well, he says he's got to be Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Kuttner, the co-founder and co-editor of The American Prospect and the Ida and Meyer Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal and the Struggle to Save Democracy. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Winning the Ideas, Losing the Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Kuttner. Always a pleasure, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bob. And I just noticed a poll today of the American voters where they don't seem to be responding to the idea that democracy is under threat from Donald Trump and other issues involving the survival of American democracy, but rather they're only interested in the economy. You know, it goes back to the Clinton war room, uh, Carville's adage, it's the economy, stupid. So does that gel with your understanding of the electorate? Well, 
mostly. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah, people are concerned about the economy. They're also concerned about whether uh, they think uh, Biden is a plausible leader. And the rap that the economy is lousy under Biden, you know, in one sense is very unfair. I mean, if you look what Biden has accomplished, if you look at what he inherited with the uh, pandemic and the recession that resulted from the pandemic and the, the $5 trillion of public investment and the fairly abbreviated recession and um, the fact that inflation is almost uh, over and we're back at full employment, it seems very unjust that people would feel that the economy is the paramount issue and that they blame the Democrats for that. On the other hand, you could say that Biden is not radical enough because from the perspective of the average working person who can't afford a house, who has a gig rather than a job, who is stuck with student debt, whose health insurance is unreliable, um, here's Biden crowing about all these economic accomplishments, but my life hasn't changed for the better. And that undermines Biden's credibility. So in a funny way, uh, the, the point of my column was that you know, those of us who've been fighting neoliberalism for 40 years, we won. And uh, no serious person thinks that deregulation and privatization and tax giveaways for the rich are going to make the economy good for regular people. But on the other hand, we're losing the politics in several ways. The remedies, although they're better than any recent Democratic president, are not radical enough. Uh, people feel that the economy is not serving them. People feel that Biden is too old. And um, the point that you made, namely that if Trump is reelected, and even if, for that matter, if he isn't reelected, um, democracy is under siege, that doesn't resonate as powerfully as some of these other issues. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty worried. And I think everybody ought to be pretty worried. So you don't think uh, what happened on Tuesday in Detroit with Biden, with the bullhorn, with the UAW workers, that's not going to move the needle? Did you watch the uh, the YouTube of that? Which one's that? Uh, the YouTube of Biden with the bullhorn. Well, I watched the, the news clips of it, yeah. I mean, uh, it wasn't a very well, long... Well, I watched the whole thing. It was only about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I would say... What did you, uh, he stepped on his applause lines. This was one of the great opportunities to give a stem whiner of an impromptu speech that showed how he was on the side of working people, and he was tepid. He hardly got any applause. He stepped on his own lines, and it was only when he handed the bullhorn to Sean Fain that it turned into an exciting moment. And Sean Fain is just, you know, giving this great speech, and there's Grandpa Joe standing on the sidelines. I thought it was terrible. I thought it was a really bungled opportunity. And, you know, the two things taken together, the fact that people's lives are not changing for the better for the most part, and that Biden seems too old to a lot of people, man, that is not a good recipe for 2024. And we can be screaming from the housetops that democracy uh, is under siege, and it is, but that may or may not motivate voters. Now, let me give you the other part of the story, the glasses half full part of the story. Um, something like 12 million people uh, who were over 65 
2020 will have died by 2024. And some 15 million young people who didn't vote uh, in 2020 will be able to vote in 2024. And they tend to be very heavily Democratic, while geezers tend to be very heavily Republican. And you've got the abortion issue and you've got the climate issue. So if we can just rouse young people to vote, and if we can just get the Democratic base to come out in the swing states, maybe once again the Republic will dodge this bullet. But this is going to be a very close-run thing. So to encapsulate it then, Bob, you're saying that Biden's a good president but not a good candidate. Biden is a good president, not a good candidate. And um, so much damage was done by his Democratic predecessors who did not stand up for working people, that working people have so taken it on the chin for 40 years that the fact that things are a little bit better under Biden, that doesn't resonate powerfully enough. Well, it is a long way to go, of course. And Wednesday night, you have a completely irrelevant presidential primary debate among the Republicans or those that are qualified. It's fewer this time. But it doesn't mean anything, does it? Trump is so far ahead that... No, and, you know, I I also um, watched Trump's interview on NBC, and I was expecting to see, you know, a complete madman, because that's how the clips of it were played. The clips that were featured were were the clips that, that suggested that maybe he was incriminating himself or coming close to incriminating himself around January 6th. He's actually very effective in the first 10 minutes, I mean, this guy always gets underrated. And basically what he said was um, things were much better under my presidency economically. And you can see how that's persuasive, right? Because unemployment was low and inflation was low and interest rates were low and COVID did not hit until the last year of his presidency. So people remember the period 2017, 2018, 2019, the beginning of 2020, as pretty good years economically. And unless you're a real aficionado of this stuff and you realize what a, what a fascist Trump was and is, um, if, if you just kind of look at this from the middle distance, what was my life like? Hey, those were pretty decent years. And yeah, Trump was, was a, a kind of dictatorial president, but that really didn't affect me day to day. And you can see how he can make this story resonate with ordinary people. So given the fact that Democrats have a leader who's been a good president and is a lousy candidate, um, Democrats have a lot of work to do. I also wrote a, wrote a piece the other day called Reverse Coattails. And that's also a potentially good piece of news in that you have um, Democratic candidates for House and Senate and local elections who are more effective than Biden, who are going to get people to turn out. And people to turn out, people who turn out to vote on an abortion referendum or people who turn out to vote for a popular Democratic governor or Senate candidate or House candidate, they're going to stick around and vote for Biden. I mean, it's awfully hard to imagine that that somebody is going to vote for Sherrod Brown in Ohio and then turn around and vote for Trump. So you could have reverse coattails. Groups like Run for Something make the point that if you can test every possible election, all the down-ballot elections, that's good for turnout, and that's good for Democratic turnout. So, you know, depending on what kind of mood you're in, 
you can argue this <laughs> as uh, as gloom and doom, or you can argue this as, well, actually, there are several rays of hope. But I think what we have to agree on is there's going to be a very close election, and any number of random things could affect which way it goes. Well, you mentioned Trump's appearance on Meet the Press, and it really does uh, reinforce the notion that he's a formidable candidate because he can have these throw red meat and say crazy stuff at his rallies with the MAGA people. But when he goes on TV and more mainstream and is addressing Republicans and independents as well as Democrats, he is effective. And by the way, that he brought up the abortion issue and tried to nuance his way around that. Which is an example. He's very of, uh, sly. He's very sly. He should. Yeah. He should never be be underrated. And I, I think the the punchline of the column that I wrote the other day was that if Biden keeps looking feeble, the risk is that the public's perception of Biden hardens, no matter what Biden does. And I think if if that continues to be the case, you're going to see more of a drumbeat that somebody else ought to be the Democratic nominee. We're not there yet. But I would not totally rule it out. And you're suggesting uh, Gretchen Whitmer is the best alternative, right? Well, I, I, the other the other one I think would be very good, although he hasn't had that much experience as Josh Shapiro. Um, but yeah, the, the the problem is that if you look at who the Democratic field is likely to be, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom doesn't travel all that well once you get outside the state of California. And um, there are others who might who might run who I think would be would be terrible candidate. Gina Raimondo wants to run. Pete Buttigieg wants to run. Uh, of the other possible uh, other possible candidates in the field, if you ask yourself, well, who would actually be better than Biden? Um, the only one I can think of would be Gretchen Whitmer, and there's no assurance that she'd get the nomination. So, you know, be careful what you wish for before you wish for an open primary. You have to really think it through, and I'm not advocating it so much as suggesting that if Biden continues to slump in the polls, there's going to be more and more pressure for an open process. Sure. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, you've also got headwinds from the No Labels group run by Mark Penn, who's essentially a Republican operative. Um, He's obviously going to make a lot of money out of it, but also he's clearly a spoiler. That's something to worry about because they'll take away the option that disaffected Republicans would have to vote for a Democrat. They can vote for the no-labels people. Yeah, and you've then, also got a lefty candidate who may pull off more votes. Oh, than, you mean than, Cornell West? Cornell West, of course. Yeah, Cornell West. Yeah. And I really worry about Cornell West. I mean, this is a, just a total ego trip on Cornell West's part. This is the last thing we need. But right. yeah, He's a know, blowhard, I'm afraid. But the thing uh, that worries... Well, see, I, I mean, I had this argument with Ralph Nader. If, if he runs in the Democratic primary, okay, that's interesting. Maybe that pushes Biden to the left. If he runs as a Green or as an Independent, that's just unconscionable. And, you know, Mark Penn is a cynic and he's a money grubber. Uh, Cornell West is supposedly an idealistic guy. This is kind of an ego trip for him. Both of these things could impinge on Biden. So, you know, there are, there are lots of minds in this minefield. Well, just in closing, the biggest one of all to my mind, though, is that as you get closer to 2024 and the election, Putin and his buddy Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia could jack up the price of oil because they clearly want Trump to come back. Yeah, that too. 
So you got all these wild cards, and you got you know pick your metaphor, but it really is like walking through a minefield. And um, I think if I had to make a bet, I would bet that Biden gets reelected, but it is by no means a sure thing. There's a guy named Simon Rosenberg uh, who's got a, a, a website well named called Hopium. It's a pun on hope and opium. Who who can and it's well named because I don't know what he's been smoking. But he keeps putting out these optimistic, optimistic scenarios, and I, I wish it were so, but I think it's a lot more touch-and-go than that. Well, Robert Cartman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure, as always. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Cutner, the co-founder and co-editor of the American Prospect and the Ida and Meyer Kirstein Chair at Brandeis University. He was formerly an assistant to the legendary I.F. Stone, a chief investigator for the Senate Banking Committee, and for 20 years wrote a column at Business Week. His books include Can Democracy Survive Global Capitalism and Going Big, FDR's Legacy, Biden's New Deal, and The Struggle to Save Democracy. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Winning the Ideas, Losing the Politics. We're going to take a brief station break and back discussing how the Republican House just rejected the Senate plan to avoid a shutdown. And we'll look into whether Trump's call to the Freedom Caucus, unless you get everything shut it down, will backfire. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sidney Blumenthal, the former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he's a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is Congressional Republicans are Trapped in a Dangerous Absurdity of Their Own Making. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sidney Blumenthal. Oh, thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Sidney. And Republican Congressman Mike Rogers, in referring to the House Freedom Caucus people who are shutting down the government, he said, you know, there's just five clowns who don't know what they want except attention. But he didn't go on to say that they're being urged on by none other than former President Donald Trump, who just recently posted on True Social, unless you get everything, shut it down. So why not put the focus on Trump? Well... Trump runs the Republican Party now. He is the Republican Party. It is the Trump Republican Party. Uh, the debate that's going to take place uh, tonight in uh, at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library is not for second place. It's not for becoming vice president. It's not to represent some faction of the Republican Party. It's utterly meaningless. This is a Trump party, and Trump wants chaos. He wants to shut down the government, perhaps because in his lunacy, he believes that somehow this will slow down the prosecutions he faces. 
or he just wants chaos because he thrives in chaos and it leads to a demand for the dictator to impose order. And beyond that, there are many other motives for for shutting down the government on the part of this far right that is basically running the house. And they include that they feel they're going to lose control of the house in the 2024 elections and they're you know, going to, uh, for everything, the maximum program, just, you know, bust everything uh, or bring it all down. And then there are even more uh, personal motives behind it that Matt Gates has. And that is that he faces an ethics committee investigation of alleged sexual misconduct and illicit drug use. He's been not indicted, unindicted, in a case in Florida where his close pal has gone to jail, but uh, he still faces the Ethics Committee investigation, which doesn't operate on the same basis, and he wants McCarthy to shut it down. So um, there's a lot going on at once here in this shutdown. But when you say that Trump wants chaos and the Freedom Caucus are carrying out his instructions, what about the fact that Trump needs chaos in order to distract from the fact that he's such a pathetic, incompetent fool who's so desperately out of his depth that from day one he's never known what he's doing? I mean, people should remember what happened when he advised people to put ultraviolet light inside their body and drink bleach. I mean, well, that's, that's who this guy is. Yeah, that's benign compared to what he said recently, uh, that uh, General Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, deserves death. He should be executed for treason. And <laughs> that NBC News and the whole NBC network should be shut down. Also, MSNBC and CNN, and I think he's just warming up. Uh, this is the uh, warm-up of the would-be dictator. I think he's panicked by what he faces and uh, flailing and lashing out. And he's dangerous, in part because he incites what's called stochastic violence. That's lone wolves or other small groups who are organized. There are a lot of guns in this country. There are a lot of semi-automatic weapons. There've been a lot of incidents. There've even been people inspired by him who claim to have been and gone out and used those weapons in incidents. So it's a very dangerous thing that he's doing with potentially dire consequences. Well, just a few days ago in South Carolina at a gun store, he was given a, it's called a Trump 45 Glock. They actually made a gun in his in his uh, honor. And also, it does not work. Pardon? If it's named for him, it must not work. <laughs> well, I wouldn't uh, take my chances on that. I mean, yes, he also posted fair. on Truth Social that, Obama's home address and some crazy guy showed up with an assault rifle. But again, is there a possibility, for example, that his outburst over NBC News, in particular MSNBC, was because he was afraid of the appearance of Cassidy Hutchinson, who's turned out to be a very, very credible 
and I think incredibly impressive witness about what really went on in that crazy White House. And that's again, goes back to my f- sense that that's what Trump is desperately trying to hide, apart from, one, trying to stay out of jail, which is why he's running for president, but two, that he just doesn't want people to realise that he's just a total fraud. He's a, he's a farce. He's a joke. Well, a couple things there. First, on the guns, um, it's illegal for him to own a gun or try to buy a gun. He's an um, He's an uh, ind- he's indicted for felonies. It's illegal for him to do that. He was this is pl- you know play acting, performance art, uh, trumping you know macho handling guns. Um, if he sought to buy it, he'd committed a crime. Uh, so on the other business on Cassidy Hutchinson, people have seen her now. She's been on television on a lot of shows as well as having testified before the January 6th committee. And I think everybody can see that she's completely authentic and credible. And uh, one of her stories involves um, standing outside the Oval Office during the insurrection while it was going on at the Capitol with Trump yelling hang repeatedly about Mike Pence. So, um, this is what we're dealing with. And um, you have a mainstream media um, that uh, thinks it's engaged in horse race coverage, like this is a normal campaign, and also applying the um, empty rules of false equivalence. Uh, so uh, you know, we're dealing with a major party candidate uh, who's running away with the nomination, who's um, also, besides under uh, indictment uh, for four separate cases for serious crimes, is also an adjudicated rapist. And you raise the question of him being a fraud. Well, yesterday in New York, the world, the judge in the um, case brought by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, about fraud, uh, Trump's fraudulent business practices for the Trump organization ruled that what Trump was doing was a complete fantasy, had no relationship to reality, and that he was engaged in profound fraud all, all from the beginning of his time of running his business. And essentially, his business in New York is shuttered. He's shut out of New York, finally. He's, uh, this was a summary judgment. So he's an adjudicated fraud. He's an adjudicated rapist. There we are. And uh, it seems not to bother his abasing followers. Well, he's also apparently a sadist. And that's according to Miles Taylor, who was inside the Oval Office as the chief aide to the head of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, and he was the first to break ranks under the name Anonymous in the New York Times, exposed the incredible danger and incompetence of this guy. And so when you mentioned a a minute ago what Cassidy Huston was saying on the very day of the insurrection that Trump was, was saying, hang, 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 referring to hanging Mike Pence, it might well have been that Trump 
was the one who instigated the chant that happened, that went viral amongst the insurrectionists, saying, hang Mike Pence, and they also put up a gallows, etc. But there also may be a sadistic motive behind it, which is that if, if Mike Pence was hanged by that rabid mob, Trump would then be able to replace him with a compliant vice president who would do his bidding, which Pence refused to do. He went with the Constitution instead of Trump. Yeah, uh, Trump, is, as uh, Pence has testified now and said publicly, uh, told him he had not only done the wrong thing, but that he, he deserved what he was getting. Uh, and Cassidy Hutchinson heard that as well, and so have others. Trump, his entire self-image, his self-esteem, is based on humiliation of others, which is obviously a form of uh, sadism. He's a very weak man who people perceive to be a strong man. He requires the humiliation of others um, in order to feel good about himself. He only sees himself in relationship to the way in which he demeans other people. So why then, I'm sure our listeners are saying, well, you know, you've told us how dreadful this guy is and the evidence is overwhelming, but then why does anybody in this country support him, let alone the fact that he owns the Republican Party and has, you know, the polls put him even, even with Joe Biden? Some even put him ahead of Joe Biden. So how do you explain that? Well, there are polls that show what people's motives are in supporting him. I think a lot of people like what he's doing. And um, there's a certain percentage of his supporters who know he's lying. They know what he is. And they like being lied to because it's a way of flipping off the liberals and the Democrats and uh, people who are virtuous, um, the virtue signalers and so on. Um, and they get gratification from his insult comedy act, uh, his performance of humiliation of people who they want to be demeaned. So, you know, there's an audience for it. Um, and um, until there's no audience, um, you know, Trump keeps going. So the problem is much deeper than Trump. So your article, Sidney Blumenthal, at The Guardian, congressional Republicans are trapped in the dangerous absurdity of their own making. You end the article by talking about Bertolt Brecht's play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Wee, that was written in 1941. And it was a book that reduced Hitler down to a minor thug in the Chicago markets trying to take over the cauliflower concession. Uh, and, of course... Breck was deliberately trying to reduce down these despots in, in the context of what they do as opposed to who they are, and that we always judge despots from the power that they wielded and the, and the corpses that they piled up rather than who they were as people. And as people, they were pathetic. And, you know, Hitler was a failed painter, while Klimt and, and Egon Schiller and others were doing this amazing paintings in in Vienna, he was a penniless illustrator that, that didn't have any talent. So this, I think, applies obviously to Trump as well. Is there a possibility that the adults in the room, 
the people have seen him up close and personal as as who he really is this this pathetic weak strong man is it possible that they can form a coalition around perhaps Cassidy Hutchinson maybe Miles Taylor and others and campaign in 2024 to to influence Republicans because if you look at the what happened in the 2020 election even though Joe Biden won the popular vote by 8 million votes he only won the Electoral College and the presidency by about 44,000 votes in key swing states. And a lot of those were disaffected Republicans. So you've got these horrible people, uh, the no-labels people, who are trying to take away that option of Republicans voting for Biden by giving them an alternative, a fake alternative at, at that. Is there a way to organize that group? In other words, disaffected Republicans may be the ones that put Biden over the top in 2024? Well, let me start at the beginning of what you said and work my way to that question. Um, Let's start with Bertolt Brecht, the German poet and playwright. Uh, And I quote at the end of uh, this piece in The Guardian uh, about uh, the House Republicans and the shutdown and Kevin McCarthy's endless emptiness. Uh, from that play, which is because behind the bleak comedy of Kevin McCarthy is this dark um, tragedy. Um, And uh, Brecht, of course, was writing a parable about Hitler through a Chicago gangster. And in the end, um, the gangster says, uh, now you stand defenseless in a cold world where, sad to say, the weak are always trampled. You've only got one protector left. That's me, Arturo We. Of course, that's Trump's technique here uh, in creating chaos and then presenting himself as the protector, the man of order. Um, That's the classic dictator's ploy. Uh, Hitler, of course, was a failed artist. I produced a movie a number of years ago about Hitler as a failed artist and the origins of the aesthetics and the sensibility of uh, fascism and Nazism through that. It starred John Cusack, it's called Max. People can see it if they want. But to come up to your question of whether right-thinking people on the right, uh, people who have served with him can come forward, I would fully expect that there'll be a lot of those people coming forward in 2024. And whether or not they have any impact on Trump's followers, I don't know. I think we're going to have to wait and see if those kinds of um, denunciations break through uh, to Republicans um, or or whether or not um, if the trials go forward and Trump is convicted, whether a conviction actually affects them, whether when he's a convicted felon for various crimes. Um, It matters to them. So far, it does not matter to them that he is an adjudicated rapist. It doesn't matter to them that he's an adjudicated business fraud. And they know what the charges are in the other cases. And um, you have to be a, um, you have to be faking yourself out Um, to think they're not true, Uh, or you simply have to not care. So we're going to see what happens here. But 
uh, we all know that uh, when Trump says he wants to trample on the Constitution and throw it out, uh, that he that's what he means and that's what he's campaigning on. And so we're dealing with ultimate stakes in this election. Well, Cindy Blumenthal, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Sidney Blumenthal, a former assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton and a senior advisor to Hillary Clinton. He has been a national staff reporter for The Washington Post, Washington editor and staff writer for The New Yorker, and his books include the bestsellers The Clinton Wars, The Rise of the Counter-Establishment, and The Permanent Campaign. And his latest book is All the Powers on Earth, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, 1856 to 1860. And he is a columnist at The Guardian, where his latest article is Congressional Republicans are trapped in a dangerous absurdity of their own making. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared